Uh, I'm going to invite a new friend up here today, Matthew, uh, not Matthew, uh, Mike Campbell. Matthew, where's Matthew Campbell? Where's Matthew Campbell? Where are you? Okay, stand up. He's the, he's the one that's going to be rapping uh, Wednesday night, okay? You, Mike, you gave us a definition. I left my phone over there, so I have that definition. is right over there. You gave us a definition yesterday at our men's meeting. You were our guest speaker. And by the way, this is Mike Campbell. And, uh, uh, Mike has spent the last 20 years of his life uh, running discipleship ministries and small group ministries and uh, a mega church and a really large church in North Carolina, a mega church in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is the home of what? Walmart, right? And um, uh, yesterday, you gave us a definition of leadership and disciple, disciple or, or, and, and a real man of God that I really like. Would you tell us that again? Yeah, the, the definition that I had shared with the fellows yesterday morning was that um, leadership and manhood, and this applies to, to anybody in this room really, is rejecting passivity, Accepting responsibility, leading courageously, and expecting God's going to do big things. So there's really four pieces to it. Yeah. I'm going to reject passivity. I'm going to accept responsibility. I'm going to lead courageously. And I'm going to expect that God is going to do amazing things on the back end of that. And, you know, of all the things we could dedicate our lives to, and especially you and I know church culture really well, and we know that the thing that we pastor types especially are often most focused on is how many people are, come out to the meeting. You know, I, I talked about it today. That's the first thing I think about when I walk in here. I look around, oh, there's a lot of empty seats here. That's how we think. And, uh, and there's, there's, there's utility and virtue in that because every person that's here is another person who can hear the gospel and we can help go to them. So numbers are not a negative thing in my mind at all. However, discipleship and training is another gear that a lot of us aren't as motivated to do because it's really hard work. And it, it even will cause some people to walk away when you say, oh, I want to teach you how to be a Christian. And, and you know how that goes. So why have you dedicated 20 years of your life to that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, and I do think numbers are an indicator of health. I think it's always a good measure. But for me... Um, you know, when my life was transformed by the gospel, and it was a radical transformation, and those of you that roll out uh, after lunch will, or after the service today will hear, hear that story. As far as I was concerned, when I got, began to get exposed to the gospels, there was no other response to a transformed life other than discipleship. Because when I got into the book of Matthew, that's what I saw was Jesus's final words to, to his people, was to go and give your life away. And I, as I started to meditate on that and I started to have people invest in my life, uh, they, they allowed me to begin to believe in myself and see myself like God saw me. Like the song that we sang, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm not a sinner. I'm a saint who occasionally sins. Right. And I'm on this, this transformative journey. And so it was really important at that stage of, the li of my life that my goodness, I, I should dedicate all my time to journeying alongside other people and giving myself away. Why? Because Jesus said so. And if, and if I'm going to be truly appreciative and thankful, uh, the gospel is not real complicated for me. Uh, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, Matthew 4, 19. Uh, we see in John 13 that we should serve. We see in Matthew 22 that we love God and love people. And then we see in Matthew 28 that we should multiply. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk in a minute uh, uh, about discipleship. And um, you said something yesterday about finding gaps in people's lives. And, and that's not, I know that you didn't mean to be, to be critical and, and, and picky, but and, uh, the reason that really resonates with me partly because uh, I just gave a talk to uh, members of our church denomination. They were all pastors and, and staff members of churches. And uh, we use a metaphor of an orchestra and a conductor. And um, in preparation for that talk, I read, a, I read a book and watched a bunch of TED Talks about orchestras and conductors. And I found out 
that the great orchestra leaders are those who identify the gaps in the piece, in, the, in, the play, in, the, in what they're playing. They identify the gaps of the instrument needs to be played or, or the mistakes and the problems. And good leaders identify gaps and elevate the gaps and says, let's look at them. And bad leaders try to cover up gaps. And let's, don't, let's, don't, let's pretend that doesn't not happening. And um, I'm going to be, the, the staff, by the way, I'm talking to you, the staff asked me, or didn't ask, they just said, Pastor, you should give that talk to our congregation. So I did. I, today I'm, I'm transforming that talk, but I'm not going to spend as much time with the symphony orchestra metaphor as I did with those guys, because those guys all, they all believe they're leaders, you know. <laughs> Many of you in this room, the word leader just scares you, and you know, I'm not a leader, you know, but you really are, but you don't like the identification. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little different direction with that this morning with you than I did with the church leaders that I spoke to Tuesday a week ago. But I, lo- I, I think this idea of identifying gaps is so critical to helping one another grow and so give us a, a minute and 90, or not, give me 90 seconds on identifying gaps. Well, I, I do think it's important. Uh, we spend a lot of time as a culture figuring out what we're really good at, don't we? Our gifts and my skill sets and my passions. But there's this other side of areas of opportunity and growth. And if I'm going to be all that God has intended me to be and, and be like Moses and finally believe that I'm intended to stand up on the rock and raise, my, and raise the staff, and do big things, and I then I have some areas of growth. And discipleship means learner. It means it means pupil or student, right? Yep. And so if I'm in a journey in somebody's life, uh, I have a lot of areas in my life that are weak, that I need growth in. And, and some of us are type A, and some of us are introverted, and some of us are extroverted, and some of us love to study God's word. And for those for others, it's a challenge. And so if I'm going to be all that God has intended me to be. Then I, then I have to figure out where my gaps are and grow in those, not just my strengths. And then when you can fast forward five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, you, you start seeing, wow, God's actually doing something with this broken vessel. And, and it's all about walking in humility uh, and uh, laying our pride and ego aside and getting a Paul in our life that can pour into us and getting a Timothy in our life that we can pour into and have a Barnabas on the side who's a great encourager. <laughs> we we're going to talk about Barnabas yeah. today. Yeah. And, and in fact, uh, I know a lot of us feel, probably in this room, feel uh, unworthy to be a discipler, we feel like. But uh, Steve Light, the psychologist, told me something of the day. He said, they, he said, they said to us in university, you just need to be one step ahead of your client to help them. <laughs> and I think that is great advice for all of us. Thank you so much. We're going we're gonna to right now show a little video clip of the Global Leadership Summit, which is an equipping tool. Every one of you need to come. Everybody in the room needs to come. Now, some of you won't be able to because you're going to be doing, you got other commitments. But you don't have any other commitment. This will be the best $89 you've ever spent in the best two days you've ever spent of your life. Uh, just, you've been to the Global Leadership Summit. You've been out to Willow Creek. Just before you go down, just give us a plug for the Global Leadership Summit, and after you're done, let's play the video, guys. Yeah, I think uh, like the summit, the, the simulcast, being able to sit through and just sit and saturate with people that are one or two steps ahead of you is about as valuable as anything that any of us could do. You think about a sponge. I want to be that sponge that can hold no more water, and things like the summit do exactly that. I just I want to leak out out of the overflow, and you can get that from the summit. Thank you, everybody. uh, All you guys, come have lunch with us. There are forces at work in our world that together shape everything we experience. Forces of influence. As influencers, we are responsible for unleashing potential, catalyzing visions, Charting a path forward in individuals, in teams, in our world. This year, join 445,000 of your peers and learn how to maximize your influence with two days of leadership training featuring Simon Sinek, Angela Arendts, Erwin McManus, Carla Harris, and Craig Groeschel. Influence is a powerful thing. How are you stewarding yours?
really be good. It'll really be good. And there's a table. We have a table in the lobby. And if you kind of have any questions, you can sign up without going to the table. Use this code here, 1H. 1HS family. You can share that code with anybody who wants to come. And uh, But if you have more questions, I, I know that uh, uh, Melissa Mills and Mike Sutton will be out at the table and they'll be able to answer all of your questions about the summit. Okay, let's look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew 20, 28, verse 19, uh, which is what, if you've been around church for a while, you know we call that the Great Commission. And... Um, there, there are two important uh, uh, pieces of information that are in the New Testament. One we call the Great Commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and the Great Commission, which is Matthew 28. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Um, I don't know how many Bob Dylan fans we have here today, but I'm a Bob Dylan fan. I just want you to know that. I mean, uh, he would have never made it in church music. We, we would have never let him sing. But uh, he, he knew better than to try to come to church and, and sing, so he made a lot of money singing elsewhere. But uh, he correctly sang. He was saved for like five minutes. He was a Christian for like five minutes. And, and during that time, he wrote these incredible songs that I can't believe nobody's singing them today. They're, they're such good songs. And one he wrote was, you got to serve somebody. Might be the devil, might be the Lord, you got to serve somebody. Well, Jesus added another verse to Dylan's song. Jesus said, you got to lead somebody. That's clearly in the scripture. So today I want to lay out for you the terrifying task of being an influencer. I want to lay out for you the delightful and bearable burden of being an influencer. And finally, I want to lay out for you the unbelievable positive result of being an influencer. You have more power than you think. You have more power than you think, and the world around you can positively change much quicker than you think. Mike made this great point yesterday. I'd never heard that before. Mike Campbell said that the city of Jerusalem lay in ruins for 50 years and they rebuilt it in 52 days. Things can change very rapidly in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, and in your church. Things can happen very quickly when you begin to change your orientation. That's what we're going to talk about today. Not so much about how to do it as the willingness to do. I find my what follows my willing. You ever notice that? My what follows my willing. I figure out how to do things once I become willing to do them. Here's the key. Here's the key. Relational influence must be elevated to the same significance as personal development. Relational, in, relational influence must be elevated to the same significance as personal development. Let me give you a newsflash today. Self-absorption doesn't need to be intentional. Intentional. It comes naturally. Well, I have a new granddaughter. She is fantastic. She is awesome. She's a, she's, but she's a canal that makes demands on one end and takes no responsibility on the other. <laughs> she, she is self-absorbed. She does not. She has never ever thought in her young life, the thought has never crossed her to be worried about, worried about whether her parents are getting enough sleep. Jay came to the office of the day and got ready for staff meeting and he looked, he looked, he looked like he had been on a drunk. You know, he looked like he had been drinking or something. He said, oh, I haven't slept, I slept four hours and two nights. <laughs> I don't know why I find that humorous. I mean, <laughs> I guess because I used to put him in the car and drive him around back in Westfield 30 some, some odd years ago and try to get him to sleep. <laughs> I've never heard of a discipleship accident. I've never heard of it. I, I've never heard. You know, I don't know how. I just don't know how my kids ended up being Christians. I just can't. I just don't get it. <laughs> I just don't know how these people that I've, I, that I know 
that I'm related to. I just don't know how they became such, you know, church planners and missionaries and evangelists and, and, and business people who glorify God. I just don't. I have no clue how that happened. No, it doesn't happen accidentally. The results of my life my, and my family and my friends is a result of skilled and faithful following of Christ and doing it intentionally. You know, personal development. But you, you, know, you, you know how that works, right? You know how you got in shape. You know how you lost weight. You know how you became a better musician. You know how you built your career. You know how you got the corner office. You know how you became a good spouse. Or you know how you became a responsible parent. You know it, it was done with intentionality. And making other people better. That's the other side of personal development. Making other people better... Developing a life of relational influence is going to take intentionality too. Listen, let me tell you today, I know about this. When I point one finger at you, now, now, now I don't know if I clarified really what I'm talking about when I talk about personal development. It is the most natural thing when you become a Christ follower, when you accept him as your personal savior. It is the most natural thing to begin a journey of personal development. You begin a journey. You, you come hear the sermons week after week, and you're thinking, what's the pastor going to say that will help me become a better person? And that's a very virtuous and wonderful pursuit to personally develop yourself. And you, if you're like a lot of Christians, you'll probably listen to podcasts, and you probably watch videos, and you probably read books that will help you become a better person, that will help you get better at, not being, uh, at managing your anger, better at uh, having a happier marriage, better at being a parent, uh, better at uh, controlling your physical appetites, all kinds of things. That, that, is a, that is a wonderful, wonderful pursuit, but it's only half of what God created you for. And you can, if, you're not, if you and I are not careful, we can, we can spend our entire Christian life only concerned about personal development and never ever take that step over into relational influence. Think about this. When Jesus had this kind of final meeting with his disciples, this, this concluding meeting, concluding his passion, concluding that section of life he called passion. He did not say to them, now make sure you go and be really good boys and girls. Make sure you, you, you don't lie and you don't commit adultery and make sure you live a good life. Now he obviously wanted them to live a good life and he wanted them not to do all those bad things. He didn't say that though. He said, you make sure you go teach others. You make sure you get into relationships where you are bringing people into the fullness of a gospel-saturated life. That's different, isn't it? And some of us, and I'm not criticizing you, I'm, I'm getting ready to criticize myself because I've been uh, not so good at this in a lot of my life <laughs> for the same reason that some of you aren't all that good at it. Because I've focused on personal development, sometimes personal holiness, mental and intellectual growth, and I really enjoy working on myself. I really enjoy spending time with myself. I really enjoy thinking about myself. I really enjoy thinking about how I can be the best that I can be. But that's not the whole deal. Get in a time capsule with me and visit Go to go with me right now, Farmersville, Texas. Rock Church, you'll seat about 200 people, wooden pews, paddle fans, no AC in the summertime in Texas, imagine that. And a little blonde-headed boy sitting on the front row. I sat on the front row partly because I love God and I got, I got infected with the presence of God and loved that. And, my, and, and, and partly because my mother was, was always sitting behind me and she had, she had the claim to the hedge that was growing out front that you could cut switches off of. And if you were, not, if you were chewing gum or passing notes or, or, or not behaving in church, you always had to sit in front of her. And if you didn't sit in front of her and do, do it right, you would, you would experience the switches that were on the hedge. And until finally, well, finally, my brother and I prayed the hedge out and they put in a concrete sidewalk. But the third reason that I was on that front row is because I fell, I became obsessed and fell in love 
with the people who do what I'm doing right now. Preachers and singers. And invariably, invariably the, the, the visiting evangelist who would come by would point out the blind-headed boy that was sitting on the front row and mention how much that blind-headed boy inspired them. It, I, Pastor Ike Davis, or evangelist Ike Davis, actually dedicated a song to me one day from the platform and called, it was about David and Goliath. And of course, I'll never forget the guy who played the converted beer bottles. <laughs> that tells you a little bit about my culture, right? So what got formulated in my soul as I absorbed those preachers and singers was that's what I wanted to become. Think about what I just said. I'm talking about you focusing on what you want to become. That was what I wanted to become. And what I wanted to become was noble, by the way, and good and right. And would it would be great if many of you young men and women here today would, would see me on Sunday morning and people like Mike Campbell and Jack Easterby and other guests who come by and, and talk a good and you would see us and, oh, I would just love it if a lot of you would say, I want to, be, I want to do that when I grow up. Because this is a very noble profession and a very wonderful uh, thing to do with one's life. But, I want to see, let me, let me just, I'm going, to, I'm going to use one of my heroes here. This is what I wanted to become, and I wanted to become was noble, and I might add, it looks something like this. You know who that is, right? Or this. <laughs> That's me when I was 20 years old, and I was preaching in the Garden of Gethsemane in Israel. That's me. I had the Billy Graham pose. I had it going. <laughs> but God is as interested in what I'm influencing others to become as he is what I become. That's what I learned a little late in life. But I think I'm getting it now. God is certainly way less interested in how great I am than he is in how many people that I make great. How many are great because of me? That's what Jesus was saying in the Great Commission. How many of you are followers of Christ because of me, not how great a follower of Christ are you? Jesus did not, as his Great Commission, say, I want you to become the greatest follower of me that ever lived. And someday I'm going to come back and judge you for how good a follower of me you were. No. He said, I want you to make followers, make disciples. Now, I thought I looked like this, but when you try to be the one-man show, you often end up looking like this. More than anything in the world, and this is back to the conducting metaphor that I used with the church leaders the other day, and it's applicable to your life too. It's not just church leaders. When heaven, thinks, when heaven looks down and thinks about leadership, I know that that image that God has is not a guy going this, preaching and, and showing people that he has good oratory skills and he knows how to use illustrations and he knows how to use body language and he knows, he knows how to change the intonation of his voice to bring people in and he knows when people need to hear a joke because they've heard enough heavy stuff and so they need something to make them laugh a little bit. You learn all these things and they're, they're partly an art form to preaching and teaching. Nothing wrong with it. If you're going to do something, try to be good at it. For goodness sake. Try to be skilled at it. Try to do it in a way, if you're going to build a table, Quentin Matson, build a table good. If you're going to preach a sermon, preach a good sermon. Don't get up and preach a lousy sermon, boring sermon. Don't do that. That's wrong. But God is not so worried about my performance. He's concerned that I'd be infectious with my life and that I'd be able to bring others along to be what he wants him to be. So when God looks down at leaders, he, he, he sees this. Now, I want you to notice that picture. And, and I don't know, I, I think from the angle, I think the lights are in my eyes, so you may be able to see it better than I can. But you can barely see the guy who's making everything come together 
You can barely see him, and you didn't even know if he can he play anything. Is he any good? I mean, does he have any talent, or is he just does this? When you are really doing what God wants you to do, you get a little lost in the picture. When you're really being who God wants you to be, the people you are leading become more prominent than you. That's what I'm trying to, to, to fix in my life. That's what I'm trying to do now. I'm trying to say, oh God, okay, God, how can I get better at calling forth the glory that's in other people? How can I get... See, before it was all about me. How can I get better at being, calling the glory out of me? So everybody walks out of here going, man, that guy can preach. You know, that just... I still appreciate compliments, and I still need them, yes. But I know they're not as important as I once thought they were. What am I doing in you? That's what matters. I want to say this. There's nothing more important for you to do with your rest of your life than to call out the virtue, the goodness, the skills, and the anointings that lie dormant in others. Stop making an idol out of personal development and cultivate a passion to see others become all they can become. And you will be the most fulfilled with the results of having lived. Now, let me give you, I'm purposely using some non-church language here when I talk about influence because discipleship has two dimensions to it. Listen carefully. It is knowing Christ as personal Savior, yes. But it's also practicing the ways of Jesus as the Jesus as the perfect, you might say, archetypal, perfect archetypal human being. Christ represents a human being becoming all they could be in every dimension of their life. Let me say that again, because that's really important. Christ represents a human being becoming all they could possibly be in every dimension of their life. Romans 14, 7, we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. So let me give you, let's break it down like I said I would from the beginning. First of all, let's look at the terrifying task of being an influencer. Making someone a disciple is asking them to change their lives in very significant ways. Think about it. Just the idea of getting someone to put weekly church attendance. Think of all your friends who don't go to church. Or, or, they, or they barely go to church. They go twice a year. Think about just getting them to put weekly church attendance on their schedule is a huge life change for them. They may have to take their kids out of soccer to do that. Another thing is, if, even if you've moved here from another culture, New England has a particular culture related to how we relate to other people. You're smiling. You know, you're not even going to say, don't you? Uh, we like well-connected insider groups that stay the same size year after year. That's what we like as New Englanders. We like small insider groups that stay the same size year after year. New Englanders believe that smaller is better. That's why when you drive from here to my house, five minutes away, you go through three towns. Huh? Twice. <laughs> yes, twice. Because Minden is not going to be absorbed by Hopedale, and Hopedale is not going to be absorbed by Milford. We're going to maintain our little group with our little board of selectmen and our planners, and we're not going to work together. And we want to say this, Menden wants to say the same size it was 200 years ago. You know, we don't invite people to events they don't already know about. Because that means they're not a part of the group that knows about those, those events. So why should they know about it? And it's not that we're being rude. It's because it's be we, keep, we think surely those people who aren't in our group have a group that does the same kind of stuff our group does. So why would we invite them to the stuff in our group? Right? If you move into a, one of our New England little towns, you won't get bombarded with phone calls. But hey, hey, we're glad you moved to our town. Make sure you come to this thing that's happening. 
Make sure you come a part of this. Come on, we want to make sure you're a part of it. No, no. In fact, if you show up at one of their things, you might not get even spoken to. Because you're, my attorney told us back a long time ago when we were starting to build, he said, Phil, you're an outsider. And he promised me that night at that meeting that I would be an insider after that meeting, but he lied. It's taken 30 years to become an insider. Also, New England culture is family first. Family, family, family. That's New England culture. And that's virtuous, by the way. We should put our families first. And finally, finally, I'm going I'm to rag on us New Englanders a little bit more. Finally, a cornerstone principle of New England life is we mind our own business. Right? That's New England. We mind our own business. We don't get into your business and what you do with your life. I remember one day I'm listening to the public radio and uh, Egan and Browdy show uh, on NPR, and they're talking about this very thing, how that uh, in, in Boston, you ride, the, you ride the subway, you do not look at the people that are around you. If someone could get on the subway naked, you would not look at them. You, they just look away. And you do not speak to the person that is sitting beside you. I don't care what they're doing, you do not speak to them. In fact, Marjorie Egan gave this story. She said one time she decided she wanted to break out of this and not be so New Englandish. And she's in the subway, and she, I guess there's no one else around, obviously, when this happened. She decided to speak to a man that was there and say, hi, how are you doing? And she did, and he mugged her. <laughs> he stole her purse. So this is terrifying stuff. We're going to get in people's lives and make them disciples? Make them disciples. I want to give you three terrors. Terror number one, therefore go. That's terror number one. Our motto is therefore be. I will be, and if people watch me leaving the house every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, they will suspect something, and if they're interested, they might follow me. But I'm just going to be. I'm not going to go. Jesus said go. Jesus said step into other people's space. Very non-New England, man. Terror number two, therefore go and make disciples. Disciple means to enroll as a pupil. It seems kind of rude to say, I know something that you don't. <laughs> I would like to be your teacher. <laughs> See how that goes over? Well, I, hang on. I'm, I'm going to let you on the hook a little bit. I'm going to give you something. It's not as bad as you think. Terror number three, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Well, let, let me give you a little, a, little, a little psychic relief here. You know what the word command means? It's not wagging finger. You do this. You stop doing that. It's not. Command means to keep the eye upon. Command means to keep. The Greek or, or Aramaic word that Jesus used was to keep the eye upon. So it's not finger wagging. You better do this. It's offering people that you love a different lens to see something through. It's simply letting them know. Well, do you know what Jesus says about that? Would you like to take a look at what Jesus says? Can I just offer to you another way of looking at that? that? That's all this means. So, but still there's the terror. Okay, so I've covered the terror. Now let's look at the delightful and bearable burden of an influencer. And you're like, how could it be delightful if it's all of those scary things? Well, let's contrast two great biblical characters. One who focused on personal performance and the other at relational influence. Think of that conductor image again, okay? The two characters that I want you to think about for a moment are one's named Elijah, and the other is somebody you would never think of to contrast to Elijah. I will promise you, none of the church leaders I talked to today, I don't think one of them had ever thought that this guy was even a great leader. I've never heard even John Maxwell talk about this guy being a great leader, but his name was Barnabas. And some of you, some of you have read the Bible a great deal. You know, some of you have not read the Bible as much. You're not familiar with maybe either of these people. So I don't have time to unpack it very thoroughly right now and tell you the whole story. But Elijah was this prophet who was called to call the nation of Israel to repentance. And he served in this very, very difficult time. 
but he was good at what he did. And kind of the grand finale of his life was he gathered these pagan prophets who were leading Israel into idolatry on, 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 the, on the mountaintop somewhere, and uh, they were all worshiping Baal, which is really, really horrible stuff. Baal would have people sacrifice their children to idols and, and all kinds of horrible things. And so he, 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 he challenged the prophets of Baal, and he challenged them to whoever calls fire down from heaven is the real God. And so they did all these things and worked themselves all day, cutting themselves, these prophets of Baal, to try to get fired off from heaven. Nothing happened. He steps up to the plate and with great flourish, prays a little prayer. Boom! Fire falls from heaven. And he thought, I did it. I preached the sermon that brought everything into conformity in my nation. I preached the sermon that solved all the problems. You know how many times I've done that? <laughs> I'm laughing because I laugh at that now. I pre I'm going to preach the sermon that's going to bring the kingdom of God to mend it. I preached a sermon that's going to stop every troublemaker in the church from not being a troublemaker anymore. <laughs> you haven't heard that sermon, have you, Susie? That sermon doesn't exist. Because it didn't work for Elijah either. In fact, Jezebel, the wife of the king Ahab, came after him, was going to kill him. And so... He went into suicidal depression, and he ends up in 1 Kings chapter 19, 4. You read this verse. I have been working my heart out for God, and I'm the only one left. Now, God says to him, though, in verse 15, now listen to this. Go back the way you came. Elijah, you missed something. You missed some very important people that were waiting for you to include them in your life. Go back and anoint Haziel, Elisha, Jehu, and by the way, Elijah, 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. In other words, God was saying, friend, you missed the relationships. You missed the orchestra. You missed the people you were supposed to be developing. You missed the people you were supposed to be pouring your life into. You wanted to be the performer. You wanted to be the one with all the glory. You missed it. Go back. In fact, Elijah did not basically change, I don't believe, because later when he went to get Elisha, and you know, some of you know the story and some of you don't, that's okay if you don't. Let me tell it to you quickly. He threw his mantle on Elisha, which meant uh, you're going to be a prophet too. And Elisha went and, and he was out plowing, you know, in the field, and he went and burned his plow cooked his oxen, had a barbecue, told his mom and dad goodbye and said, I'm coming with you, Elijah. And you know what Elijah said? Anybody know? Go back. What have I done to you? He was still all about personal development, not about relational influence. That's when I want to move you and I from today. I want to move us and not move you from personal development, because you always want to be personally developing. You always want to be getting better. I want, to, I want you to add relational influence. Make it just as important in your life as personal development. Make it just as important as getting better at speaking, getting better at writing, losing that 20 pounds, getting better at your physical exercise routine. I want you to make it just as important that you take somebody along with you. Because that is the message of the Great Commission. Now let's look at Barnabas. Barnabas also was a good performer. This guy could preach too, because you read Acts chapter 11, verse 19, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. So, man, if I'd been Barnabas, I would have just uh, you know, started my YouTube channel, uh, set up my podcast, organized my team, and Say, guys, my job is to preach and do this, and you guys are going to have to get all the things set up, get the next crusade set up, and then we're going to go to this city and this city and this city because obviously I'm good. But you know what Barnabas did? He said, time out. Time out. I need to go get somebody. Somebody that came on the scene and, and the church said he needs to go away. This guy that became a Christian... And he caused so much trouble his first day out of the gate as a Christian. He went down to the synagogue and started confronting everybody. 
And it caused such, an, uh, such a tumult in the, in the city of Antioch that they said, Barnabas, they said, Paul, go away. We don't know about you. And Paul went and stayed on the backside of the desert for three years. Paul needed to be brought in and lifted up. And Barnabas said, hold it, hold it. I'm not going to preach tomorrow night. He said in the last part of the verse, then Barnabas went on to Tarsus looking for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. I hope you're getting this because it's so easy. This is not hard. Influence is not finger wagging and preaching. It's just including people in your journey. Let me say it again. Influence is not finger wagging and preaching. It's just including people in your journey. You know what Barnabas' name meant? His name meant the son of encouragement. Can you handle that assignment? Could you just become an encourager today? Let me give you three reasons. It's more joyful and meaningful to become a source of encouragement than a consumer of encouragement. If I could change something about my younger ministry life, is I worried too much about surrounding myself with encouragers. And you don't always get your best result when you're just trying to get people who encourage you all the time. You need some encouragers. You can't handle, you can't handle a, a whole team full of challengers. That will kill you. You need some encouragers. You need some people to pat you on the back, pastor good sermon. You need that. Scotty, you need that, man. Got to have that. <laughs> but you can become an encouragement hog. Quit worrying about how many people are encouraging you. Think about how many people are you encouraging. Number two, it's far easier and fruitful to be interested than it is to be interesting. I, I spend so much time and so much angst worrying about being interesting. <laughs> You're laughing. Man, you know, I, I would go to uh, meetings and I would think about all these conversations I'm going to have and I would think, oh, oh boy, I've I got to be interesting. I've got to tell, tell the best jokes and I've got I to have the most information. I'm sure that they're all waiting to know what I have to say. I'm sure that people are just waiting to see how interesting I'm going to be today. And you know what? Nobody's thinking that. Everybody's thinking, I wonder how interesting I'm going to be today. So the formula for human relationships is to get interested in people. You know, I put I, in this 40 days of focus and I met with all these leaders and I decided I'm going to meet with these leaders and I'm going to tell them as little about myself as possible. Even if they ask about, I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to go in and try to tell them everything my church is doing and everything we're doing. Because that's what I've done before. I'm going to pepper them with questions about what they're doing and what they think. And even when they ask me about me, I'm going to deflect. I, I really said that. You know, you've got to be very intentional. When, when you're really as dysfunctional as I am, you've got to be really intentional to change. <laughs> and this one person, I won't say who it is, but somebody, it would impress you probably if I said who it was. Someone that I certainly, I certainly put up here, and it's not a great discipleship illustration, I'll admit, but it, it will work in discipleship too. Because our first meeting, we met at Dunkin' Donuts, and I really, really peppered him with questions. And I didn't try to give him my great insight, I tried to learn his. And that, I thought, I was gonna, I'd ask this guy, give me an hour of your time, give me one hour of your time and let me interview you. And I got some questions. And he said, yes, I'll give you an hour. He gets up to leave at the end of that first meeting. And he goes to the door at Dunkin' Donuts. And I'm sitting at this table just like this. And he turns to me and he goes, can we meet again next week? I said, well, I'll have to check my schedule. <laughs> <laughs> we met the second time. And... I'm thinking, oh, I got two hours out of him. That's pretty cool. And same thing. He starts walking toward the door. He said, we need to do this again before the summer's over. And I think I'm going to meet with him in the morning. People will love you if you start being interested in them. People will love you 
if you get better at asking good, good questions. And it's a lot easier to think of questions than answers. <laughs> it's a lot easier. Here's a great question. You want to disciple somebody? Well, I got to tell them about the, 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 the eschatology and hermeneutics and all those big words, you know? No, no, no. Here's what you ask somebody. Here's a good question. What problems do you have that I could help you solve? <laughs> what problems do you have? To turn and just try that out on your neighbor right now. Say, what problems do you have that I can help you solve? It's a great question because, because you're not even saying you could solve it. And if you will start helping people solve their problems, they will let you disciple them. They will let you. Because what do we say? Jesus is the answer. Well, but Jesus is the solution to every problem of your life. Well, why don't you ask him the problems? And if you start dealing with people about their problems, it will eventually lead to Jesus. This isn't hard, man. This is not hard. <clears throat> okay, let's end up with the unbelievable positive results of being an influencer. I'm telling you, we haven't even started to unpack this. I, it, it is the, maybe, I don't know, but it may be the greatest single principle in the world is the principle of becoming an influencer. But I, I could give you like 20 reasons. We could do like a series on, on it, but I'm going to give you two. Emotionally, you will correct the greatest error made in the pursuit of human happiness and fulfillment. You know what the greatest error in the pursuit of human happiness and fulfillment is? Pursuing happiness and, and personal fulfillment. <laughs> it's the greatest error in having happiness and personal fulfillment, right, Pat? It's the greatest do not try to be happy, please. It's not, you will never be happy trying to be happy. You might become unbelievably happy, though, if you become a source of joy and encouragement to others. I don't know if you'll always be unbelievably happy, but you'll be unbelievably fulfilled when you see your fruit begin to grow. Oh, my goodness. There's nothing like it. When you see your fruit begin to grow, when you see the people that your life mattered to. It will just revolutionize your being. I'm telling you, it's the greatest thing you do. Finally, spiritually, you are practicing divine math, and that will transform the world. Because divine math is not addition, it's multiplication. Let me give you this, and this is not original with me. I didn't do the math on this, but somebody did. It's the potential of qualitative life on life investment, is what it's called. Somebody did this. And uh, hang on before you, 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 you put that chart up. I'm going to say it, and then I want you guys to put it up. At the end of 10 years, if you led 1,000 people to Jesus Christ and made them Christians, in 10 years, you would have 10,000 people. Now, that'd be pretty good, right? But if you discipled and mentored two people, and, and so that's three, and they all went and discipled three people, the end number after 10 years would be 59,000.04 people. Show it. Put it up. I think. So 1,000 people a year. Because that lower number is multiplication. That top number is addition. That lower number is multiplication. How many of you think that you could maybe get in connected with two people who know a little less than you do about the Bible? I mean, if you're starting from zero, I tell you what you do. Here's what you do. If you're starting from zero, here's what you do. Create yourself a Christian schedule this week, a disciple's schedule, which means you're going to, you know, you're probably going to read the Bible and pray 15 minutes every morning this week. And you might listen to a few sermons during the week, and, and, and you're going to pray as you go and start maybe listening to some Christian music instead of sports radio and stuff like that. So you're, you're going to be a disciple. So you spend a week doing that, and then next week, find somebody who's a week behind you. 
and invite them out for lunch. You know, I've been, I've been doing this lately. A young man, I won't call him out. I don't know if he's here this morning or not, but I really care about. And he's been in our church a long time and has his ups and downs. And I just, you know, I just called him up the other day. Can, would you have lunch with me? And he had mentioned he'd like to get together, so I don't make it sound like, but, but it wouldn't have mattered if he, even if he hadn't. I never invited him to lunch before. We had a great time. And, and I, another brother who's here this morning, I won't even tell you, but we talked, we had dinner the other night, and I asked him, you know, someone just said, what, what, what do you want to do? What do, you, what do you think God wants you to do when you retire? You ask that question, and opens, it opens all kinds of stuff up where you, you help a person to see a, a God has a godly, Christ has a godly idea of retirement, and there's this worldly idea of retirement, and there's this Christ-honoring way of retirement. Guys, this is really doable. We can do this. And I'll tell you what I want you to do. You got this card here. It says, here's the people I want to join me on my, it's supposed to say Christ-following journey, but maybe I made the mistake and didn't put Christ-following, but it's supposed to say Christ-following journey. I want you to, anybody got a card? Do you have a card? I want you to write down five people that you're going to start praying about, and you're going to ask God to show you how to connect with them, and you're going to start caring about them. I'm going to ask the prayer partners to come right now. And I want, here's what I want you to do. Now, you can come down here and pray about absolutely anything that you're going through. Your life. That's what we do response time for at Bethany because we care about you and we want to see Christ touch. Whatever area where you're hurting and suffering, we believe that Christ can make a difference. So anything going on in your life you want to pray about, you get down here in a minute and ask these prayer partners to pray for you. But I want a lot of people. I, I'm going to be disappointed if I don't see a lot of people walk down with this card. And you got the names of the people. And you can let them see it or you don't let them see it. I don't care. But y'all lay hands on this card. And you're going to pray for the people that you're going to begin to care about. And you're going to begin to find a way and ask God to show you how to include them in your life. That you're not going to go alone. You're going to invite them to Antioch. You're going to invite them from Tarshish. You know, a lot of people accept Jesus Christ. And then they go back home to Tarshish. And we, oh, we won them to Jesus. Aren't we great? Yeah, but they're back in Tarshish. Got to go get them. Because we, we didn't just win them to Jesus so they can live a broken down life and then go to heaven at the end. <laughs> we brought them to Jesus so they could be the best they can be and have all the re- benefits of the kingdom living now and here and now. So go to, go to Tarshish and get your Paul and bring them to Antioch and love them. I want to pray. When I'm done praying, I want you to come. Father, in Jesus' name, anoint this time and sanctify it as a time of calling forth the glory and uh, virtue and uh, life and potential of other people in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come on, let's enter into response time, Bethany. Let's love the Lord. Let's love people.